0: Once again, brethren, we take up our weighty subject of the work of oversight, government, and shepherding by the man of God in the pastoral office. And thus far in this unit of our study, we've considered the biblical description of the task of oversight, both in its essence and in its governing disposition. And as your abstract indicates, we now move on Uh, to consider the two major biblical categories of the task. There are the tasks that I have designated as Section 1, the tasks that pertain to the corporate life of the people of God, and then Section 2, the tasks that pertain to the individual needs of the people of God. That will be taken up in P.T. 8, uh, the whole section on pastoral counseling or individual pastoral care. Now, beginning on page 129 of your full notes, you will note that we now address ourselves to the issue of the tasks that pertain to the corporate life and activity of the church. And as we do, we must be brought by the word and the spirit to feel the crucial importance of this subject. And in seeking to set forth this importance, we're going to consider this morning the biblical data under two headings. Most of our time will be taken up with the first, the pivotal passage which demonstrates the crucial importance of the corporate activity of the people of God. And then in conclusion, the supportive passages and perspectives. So as we take up this matter of the crucial importance of our subject, let us first of all then address ourselves to what is listed as number one under your introduction, the pivotal passage which demonstrates the crucial importance of the life and activity of the church. And that passage is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. These things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly. But if I tarry long, that you may know how men or how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, there are many and weighty portions of the New Testament which could be brought forward to demonstrate how crucial is the subject of ordering the corporate life and activity of the church. However, in my judgment, no passage is more fundamental or comprehensive than is 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15. I regard it as the epitomizing text on this issue. To use the Latin terminology, it is the locus classicus on this whole subject. I have a special affinity for this text because of its profound impact upon my own soul in the foundational days of the formation of Trinity Church. As many of you know, my background ecclesiologically was that of the Salvation Army, and if you know anything about the Salvation Army, you know that it has no ecclesiology. It is an organization that has military framework and terminology seeking to function as a church. Practice no ordinances, neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper. They do not call the leaders by church names but by military terms, lieutenant, captain, sergeant major, and lieutenant generals, generals right down the rank. So that you can imagine, growing up as a little boy into my early teenage years, the whole of my experiential ecclesiology was this hybrid of military-church situation in the Salvation Army. And then coming into broad evangelicalism with some contact with a Baptist church that had the typical structure of the pastor, and then these men called deacons, who were basically men with perhaps a little more uh, spiritual perception and some kind of impressive uh, credentials in terms of their place in the business world that functioned as sort of semi uh, shared overseers it's hard to identify them then off for 2 years at an interdenominational Christian college where there was no ecclesiology and on to 2 years at a Bible college Uh, where to keep everyone happy from a broad ecclesiological constituency, again, there was no ecclesiology. For example, when it came in systematic theology to the subject of baptism, we were told to read so many hours on both sides of the subject of infant baptism or confessor's baptism and write a paper on what we felt was the more biblical position. That was the beginning, middle, and end of uh, the, the subject. Well, then, five years in an itinerant ministry totally freelance, ansible to no one but the Lord, and a few men of God to whom I made myself ansible, and then after all of that experience plunged into a denominational situation that was also, from an ecclesiastical standpoint, a hybrid. The Christian and Missionary Alliance began exactly as its name indicates. It was an alliance of Christians with a missionary vision, And therefore, in its ecclesiology, there were influences of of Episcopalian perspectives, Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, Independent, and so its ecclesiology was hash. Now, with all of that marvelously preparatory background, here we were in 1967 starting afresh with the question what is a church? We had our Bibles and a conviction that we wanted to be a biblical church. And in the midst of wrestling with those issues, I shall never forget when this truth of this passage came home with power to my own heart. That God had deposited in the scriptures specific data that was explicitly concerned with the oughtness of behavior in God's house. And I can remember the thrill when having discovered this, I went to a man who was in many ways my mentor in helping me to struggle through to some conscious embrace of what we call the doctrines of grace, Calvinistic soteriology, when I discovered that as we were thinking about the formation of the church and church officers, that here was, in a very real sense, a divinely inspired manual of what an elder is and what he ought to be and what he does and what a deacon is and who should take the lead in the church and the place of men and women. And I can remember my excitement. Although my excitement wasn't shared, I was told, now look, look, that's the ideal standard, but don't take it too seriously. If you do, uh, you'll end up causing a split, you'll end up uh, having no officers, etc. But God gave me grace not to take that compromising counsel, and this passage was indeed in those early days a tremendous spur to take seriously this whole issue of the task of an overseer with respect to ordering the corporate life of the people of God. So, I'm prejudiced to the text not only because of what I understand to be its objective content by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but because of my own personal experiential interaction with this text in those early days and throughout our experience as a congregation. And so, we're going to park on this text this morning as I seek to lead you through what I trust is a responsible exposition of its content and then some very practical applications of that content to the subject in hand. And first of all, I ask you to note with me the circumstances in which Paul wrote these words. When he wrote, these things write I unto you, he is referring most likely to the things that he began to articulate in chapter 2 and verse 1. Notice he is conscious that he is making a transition into a fresh body of concern. I exhort, therefore, in the light of what is preceded, first of all, first of all. So there is in the apostle's mind a segment in the letter that has a first of all and then he goes on to develop these various aspects of public worship the public teaching particularly the uh, who should do the teaching with respect to gender and then the instituted leadership in the church that he addresses in chapter 3 verses 1 through 13 and he says i write these things out of the matrix of these particular circumstances. And the circumstances are identified in terms of what I've called, and you see in your notes, a sanctified desire coupled with a realistic qualification of that desire. The sanctified desire is that he hopes to come to Timothy shortly. He has left Timothy behind at Ephesus, as he indicates in chapter 1 in verse 3, and he hopes it is his desire, his wish, that in the providence and purpose of God he may, within a relatively short period of time, join Timothy in the ongoing work of seeing the church at Ephesus come to fuller spiritual maturation. However, he has a realistic qualification of that desire. He says, but if I tarry long, he has had no direct revelation from God that he will return to Ephesus at all. In other situations in the life of the apostle, he had revelatory data concerning future places of ministry. God said to him, as you've borne witness before me at Jerusalem, you will bear witness of me at Rome. So Paul knew, no matter what happened, any amount of shipwrecks and all the rest, Almighty God has told me I'm going to live long enough to get to Rome and bear witness to Him. That was an infallible revelation, and in that sense, Paul knew he was invincible. But here, he had no such revelation. He has this sanctified desire, but then there is this realistic qualification of the desire, but if I tarry long. And it is within that set of circumstances that, secondly, the principal issue of concern behind his writing is explicitly identified. And what is that focus of his concern? Well, he tells us, But if I tarry long that you, Timothy, may know how you ought to behave yourself In the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, the varying translations uh, indicate that there's a little bit of difficulty in the grammatical construction. The Hina is followed by a second person singular perfect subjunctive of Oida, that you may know, properly rendered, that you, Timothy, it's second person singular, that you, Timothy, as the apostolic representative, the servant of God to implement the will of God there at Ephesus in the church, that you, Timothy, may know how you ought. And here we have this third person singular present indicative of that verb that means obligation, how it is necessary for you to behave yourself, a present middle infinitive of honestrefo. So he clearly indicates that the principal issue of his concern is the oughtness of the behavior which Timothy ought to be aware of with respect to that church there at Ephesus. Lenski's comments on the passage are helpful. The infinitive is a present middle to be conducting thyself, and here refers not to ordinary Christian conduct like that of other godly church members— but to the official conduct of Timothy in his work of supervision. The aedes is the second perfect, which is always used in the sense of the present tense. The indirect question introduced with how is deliberative. Timothy will ask, how must I act in this or in that matter? Paul has here told him how. The directions are so important. Because Timothy is managing things in God's house. This is not Timothy's own house, nor the house of the church members. It belongs to God. And so, as I've indicated in your outline, uh, in the outline, the principal issue of concern is behavior in the house of God, and how Timothy, not as a private Christian, But how Timothy, as an apostolic representative, the official conductor of the life of the church there at Ephesus, how he is under obligation to behave himself. These things are brought into the category of moral necessity. There is an oughtness of a distinct pattern of behavior With respect to the corporate life of the church, which Timothy must understand, lay to heart, and make a matter of visceral conviction. Paul is not writing, giving... A litany of suggestions or a pick and choose litany from which Timothy may select, well, this seems like it may work best here and this may work best there. No, these things I write hoping to come to you shortly. But if I am not able to come shortly, since these are the passionate concerns of my heart, and you, Timothy, are there as my representative under the Lordship of Christ, I'm writing these things that you, Timothy, may know how you ought to behave yourself in God's house in order to be a faithful steward in the implementation of apostolic rule and government within the church "...of the Lord Jesus Christ." And Paul is clear that he does not want Timothy to be ignorant concerning the details of specific church behavior. He then states issues calculated to make sure that Timothy will not be negligent in implementing these directives, and that brings us to letter C, the undergirding convictions that gave birth to this concern. Out of those circumstances of sanctified desire and realistic qualification, with the principal issue of concern articulated, what are the undergirding convictions that gave birth to this concern in the heart and mind of the Apostle? And I have noted in your notes that first of all, the specific identity of the Church in its corporate life, that constitutes the backbone Of his undergirding convictions. It is the specific identity of the church in its corporate life. And here the Apostle sets that before us by means of two very pregnant descriptive phrases. First of all, it is the house of God. And by the use of a genitive of possession, It must be seen, in Timothy's eyes, as God's house. As Lenski indicated, it is not Paul's house. It is not Timothy's house. It is not the people's house. It's God's house. But perhaps more dominantly in that pregnant imagery is the concept, it is God's house, that is, the church is God's special dwelling place. Certainly in the New Testament, that emphasis comes through in the text that I have listed, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16, where the apostle indicates that the church there at Corinth was the sanctuary of God and his dwelling place in such a way that if any would destroy the temple of God, him would God himself destroy. Know you not that you, that is, the church in its corporate identity and life and existence, that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 6.16, a parallel passage, and then the clear statement of the apostle in Ephesians 2.22, that we are built together to be a habitation of God through the Spirit. And I would urge you on some occasion when you want to do a little sanctified ruminating through your Bible to just trace out the house of God concept. I've given you just three seed texts. It's a rich vein of biblical theological study. You remember that in the incident recorded in Genesis 28, 17, Jacob is fleeing from his brother and from his household, And God comes in this amazing theophany and manifests himself to Jacob in the middle of the night. And as the Lord does this, what conclusion does Jacob come to? Genesis chapter 28 and verse 17. When he awakes, verse 16, Jacob awakened out of sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Here's a man lying on a rock in the middle of nowhere to go to sleep. And he says, this is the very house of God. Why? It was the place of the peculiar, concentrated manifestation of the presence of God himself. This is the house of God. God is here in a way he is not everywhere. This is the house of God. Likewise, with respect to the tabernacle, the same terminology is used. One specimen passage, Exodus 28 and verse 17. Exodus 28 and verse 17. I think that's the right reference. Exodus, no. It is the wrong reference. Let me pull the reference. It's twenty-three, nineteen. I don't know how that got into your printed notes. Please correct that. Exodus 23 and verse 19. The first fruits of the ground you shall bring into, now this would be the tabernacle, and it is called the house of Jehovah thy God. And then likewise with the temple in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 13, at the dedication of the temple, it picks up this phrase, it is called the house of God. And then as we go through the prophets and we see those prophetic utterances of gospel days, often the imagery is in terms of God establishing his special dwelling in Zion, and the nations flowing up to the house of God. So it's a rich biblical theological strain of thought. I can only, in the interest of time, throw out a few seeds, but notice its peculiar relevance. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, I want to come to you shortly. But if in the providence of God I'm delayed, I am passionately concerned that you, Timothy, will know how you ought to behave yourself in the church which he now identifies as God's house, the place of his unique and peculiar dwelling on earth. And then there follows an indefinite relative pronoun, hatis, And as Fairbairn very astutely remarks, when we find the hatis, it is an unusual pointer to that which follows. The indefinite relative hatis is in such a connection stronger than the simple relative being employed to introduce an especial attribute belonging to the nature of the object. It is its real and peculiar property or differentia, that wherein it differs distinctly and specifically from something else. So he says to him, It is the house of God, namely that which is or which is indeed the church of the living God. So it is the identity of the church in its corporate life not only as house of God, but as church of the living God. It exists as the called out assembly, the ecclesia, constituted in its identity by the kletos, the ones thus called out of God, the God who in contrast with the dead idols of Ephesus the idols worshipped in the plethora of the heathen temples at Ephesus. The uniqueness of this God is that he is the living God. All that he has ever been as God, he is now in the livingness of his glorious being. And I've cited two texts. First Thessalonians one nine, where Paul is recounting the conversion of the Thessalonians. And he says that you turned from your idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son out of the heavens. And when our Lord draws forth from Peter the confession of His identity, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that terminology, the living God, if not parallel or equal to, certainly is in the direction of the exclusiveness of the one God who exists. But even more than his exclusiveness is the fact that all that he ever has been, he is now. And therefore, to contemplate him in terms of the frightening nature of coming into his hands in judgment, the writer to the Hebrews can say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands not of some dead, impotent deity. "...who is just made of wood or stone, or the mere concoction of men's ideas extrapolated into that which they call God, but into the hands of the living God." Of all the designations the writer to the Hebrews could give, he designates him as the living God. Now, do you see why Paul is so concerned about the corporate life of the people of God? Why he writes to Timothy with such a sense of urgency... Do you see why he writes as he does? It's because of his understanding of the identity of the church in its corporate life. He really believed that the church was not mere religious club that could be encouraged, that it would be helped somehow or another by the blessing of God because of his promises. He believed, as he wrote, that there at Ephesus, those who gathered wherever they were now gathering, that they were in a unique and very real sense God's very special dwelling place on earth. And therefore, as God was deeply concerned with his dwelling place on earth under the old covenant, see that thou make all things after the pattern shown thee in the mount. How concerned he was with every detail of the life of his people as it centered in the place of his special dwelling. And with respect to the temple, how much more under the new covenant, where there is a measure of his presence and indwelling that is heightened and even more glorious. And he says, Timothy, I write these things and I take them seriously. And I want you to take them seriously because I'm writing concerning matters that touch the house of God, the ecclesia, the called out assembly Of the living God that exists because he lives and in the livingness of his grace and power he has called out a people to himself and the God who dwells within them is indeed the living and the true God. How evil then to be indifferent to these issues to be merely pragmatic on these issues to be in bondage to ecclesiastical traditions on these issues. The identity of the church is one of the undergirding concerns of the apostle, but then, if you'll notice, on page 130, as we move on in the outline, there was a second pregnant phrase that is used that points not to the identity of the church in its corporate life, but to the unique function of the church in its corporate life. And again, we have two things. Both of them have reference to the common denominator, the truth. Notice what the passage says. It is the house of God, church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. So the common denominator is the truth. Now in the context, the truth is all of revealed religion. But as surely as Christ is the lodestone of that truth of revealed religion, this does have peculiar reference to him In the reality, significance, and uniqueness of his person and work. For notice, he goes on with the conjunction in verse 16, And, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And this, that many feel was an early Christian poem or confessional hymn, focuses upon the uniqueness of the person and work of Christ in actual redemptive history. So when he points now to the unique function of the church in its corporate life and says that that function, in the two prongs that we'll look at, has as its common denominator the truth, the truth is, in the most general sense, the full corpus of revealed religion, revealed truth. But peculiarly as that truth focuses upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is that twofold function? Well, he uses two words obviously in a way of imagery, pillar of the truth and basement or foundation of the truth. Pillar, that which holds up the roof of a building, and often in New Testament times it was the pillar that would be one if not the most ornate part of a structure, particularly if it were a temple. And the word for pillar, stulos, is found in Revelation 3:12 12, in Galatians 2, 9. And here I read these references to give us just a little biblical flavor for the significance in the Lord's word uh, to one of the seven churches, Revelation 3 and verse 12, the church at Philadelphia. He that overcomes, I will make him a stulos, a pillar in the temple Of my God. He will be put in a prominent place, and he shall go out thence no more, and I will write upon him. You see the element of the ornateness, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. And then Galatians 2 9, it's used metaphorically, where Paul speaks of the pillars of the church. And when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas and John, they who were reputed to be pillars. Gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, men who, by their prominence of gift and usefulness, were considered unusually significant in supporting the structure of the church there in Jerusalem. Then he uses the word basement or foundation, that which holds up the pillars and all that rest upon them. And he says that the church, in its function, is, with respect to the truth, both its pillar that holds it up, and also its basement or foundation that holds the pillars and all that rest upon them. Now, what does that imagery convey? Well, we do not have here any Romish idea that the church is the mother of the scriptures and the mother of truth and the definer of truth. No, according to Ephesians 2 and verse 20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. However, while totally turning away from the Romish concept and the Romish perversion of this text, we must not bleed the text of its true significance, that in a very real sense, one that the apostle did not have any scruples about saying concerning specific local church at Ephesus and by implication any other churches there in that part of Asia Minor or wherever they may exist, that they are constituted by God both pillar and foundation of the truth. Now in what sense is the church the basement or foundation of the truth? Well here I quote from Fairbairn's most perceptive remarks in his commentary on this passage from his book on the pastoral epistles. They should be, and they are, that is churches, while steadfast to their profession, a basement whereon the truth may securely rest amid all the fluctuations of the world, and a pillar to bear it aloft that all may know and consider it. Now there's been a disinclination in certain quarters to acquiesce in this mode of interpretation because of its supposed tendency to play into the hands of the Church of Rome. It is no doubt one of the passages on which Rome seeks to ground her claim to universal homage as the one church of Christ. But it's no more suitable to her purpose than the promise to Peter in Matthew 16 and verse 18. Only by arbitrary distinctions and vain assumptions can either the one passage or the other be made to favor her pretensions. Here in particular, where the church is set forth as the pillar and basement of the truth, It is a test we have to deal with, as well as a claim to consider. For the truth is not of the church's making, but of God's revealing. She has it not as of her own, but from above, and has it not to alter or modify it to her own will, but to keep it as a sacred treasure for the glory of God and the good of men. And if she should anyhow corrupt or lose hold of this truth, she so far ceases to be the house of God. For she now does that part to the devil's lie, which ought to have been done exclusively for the sure word of God. That is, she now becomes foundation and pillar for the devil's lie, rather than of the truth, and therefore she ceases to be the church. It was so, we know, with much of the pretentious section of the Jewish community before the time of Christ, and the Apostles elsewhere informed us that in the Christian church there was to be a great apostasy, a mystery of iniquity working under the cloak of Christian profession, in consequence of which many should be given up to believe a lie, 2 Thessalonians 2. Rightly understood, therefore, this passage determines nothing for Rome, or for any church which rests its claim to apostolicity on historical descent. The grand test is... Does she hold by the truth of God? Is she in her belief and practice a witness for this truth? Or does she gainsay and pervert it? In that sense, the church is constituted not only pillar that holds aloft, but foundation or basement that supports the pillar and all that rest upon it. It is a figure of speech to set forth the reality of the function of the church, As the divinely ordained instrument to set forth, to propagate, and to communicate the truth to the world. And here I trust you'll not find it tedious to listen to a rather lengthy quote from Calvin, who so often as an expositor has an unusual ability to go to the heart of the issue. It is no ordinary dignity that is ascribed to the church when it is called the pillar and ground of the truth. For what higher terms could be used to describe it? There is nothing more venerable and holy than the truth which embraces both God's glory and man's salvation. Were all the praises which its admirers have lavished on heathen philosophy gathered together into one, it could not compare with the worth of this heavenly wisdom, which alone has a title to be called light and truth and instruction for living, the way and the kingdom of God. But this truth is preserved in the world only through the church's ministry. Thus what a weight of responsibility rests upon pastors to whom has been entrusted the charge of such an inestimable treasure. How shameless are the triflings of the papists to infer from Paul's word that all their absurdities should be considered the oracles of God because they are the pillars of the truth and so infallible. But we have here Paul bestowing such a high title on the church. Clearly he wishes. Now notice the practical pastoral sensitivity. He wishes by expounding to pastors the greatness of their office to remind them with what faithfulness, diligence, and reverence they ought to discharge it. And at the same time, how dreadful is the retribution that awaits them if by their fault harm comes to the truth, which is the image of God's glory, the light of the world, and the salvation of men. And then he goes on to amplify this very principle and lay upon the consciences of all of God's servants this sense of awesome responsibility with respect to the truth, but not just the truth generically, for remember, in this section where Paul identifies the function of the church as pillar and basement or foundation of the truth, he is not dealing with what he dealt with in chapter 1, objective doctrine. He's dealing with church behavior. And he's saying, Timothy, you must think of the church as pillar and ground of the truth, not only in terms of the maintenance of orthodoxy in what you confess, but in orthodoxy in what is practiced in the house of God. There is a heterodoxy of ecclesiastical practice, just as there is a heterodoxy of objective confessional principles. And it's interesting that he brings forward this rich and powerful imagery, not in connection with what we would call objective saving truth, but with respect to matters of practical ecclesiology, behavior in the house of God. Now it's in conjunction and in connection with the function of the church as well as its identity that the apostle writes as he does to his son in the faith, Timothy, determined that he will feel something of the passion of his own heart with respect to behavior in the house of God. Now I want to conclude before we come to our extended application of the text by reading again most perceptive words from the servant of God of another age in his masterful collection of sermons preached to the Princetonian students of another generation, Warfield's faith and life. And I again underscore their worth. In opening up the text, great is the mystery of godliness from verse 16. In typical Warfield fashion, he weaves in the setting of that uh, confession with these words. It is, uh, this is page 375 in Faith in Life. It is of the more importance that we should note this that there is a disposition abroad to treat all matters of the ordering of public worship and even of the organization of the church as of little importance. Any new thing under the sun? We even hear it said about us with wearisome iteration. "...that the New Testament has no rules to give, no specific laws to lay down in such matters. Matters of church government and modes of worship, we are told, are merely external things of no sort of significance. And the church has been left free to find its own best modes of organization and worship, varying doubtless in the passage of time and in the church's own passage from people to people of diverse characters and predilections." No countenance is lent to such sentiments by the passage before us, or indeed by these pastoral epistles, the very place of which in the canon is a standing rebuke to them, or in fine by anything in the New Testament. On the contrary, you will observe Paul's point of view is precisely the opposite one. He takes his start from the inestimable importance of the gospel, Thence he argues to the importance of the church, which has been established in the world, so to speak, as the organ of the gospel, the pillar and buttress on which its purity and its completeness rests. Thence again he urges to the proper organization and ordering of the church that it may properly perform its high functions, and accordingly. He gives minute prescriptions for the proper organization and ordering of the church, prescribing the offices that it should have, and the proper men for these offices, and descending even into the details of the public services. His position, compressed in a nutshell, is simply this. The function of the church as guardian of the truth, that glorious truth, which is the gospel, is so high and important that it cannot be left to accident or human caprice how this church should be organized and its work ordered. Accordingly, he, the inspired apostle, and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ our hope, has prescribed in great detail, touching both organization and order, how it is necessary that men should conduct themselves in the household of God, which is nothing other than the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. In other words, it is God's church, not man's, and God has created and now sustains it for a function, and He has not neglected to order it for the best performance of that function. To imagine that it is of little importance how the church should be organized in order, then, is manifestly to contradict the Apostle. To contend that no organization is prescribed for it is to deny the total validity of the minute directions laid down in these epistles. Nay, this whole point of view is as irrational as it is unbiblical. One might as well say it makes no difference how a machine's put together, how, for example, a typewriter is disposed into its several parts, because, forsooth, the typewriter does not exist for itself, but for the manuscript that is produced by, um, uh, produced by it. Or rather, through it. Of course, the church does not exist for itself. That is, for the beauty of its organization, the symmetry of its parts, the majesty of its services, it exists for its product, and for the truth which has been committed to it, and of which it is the support and stay in the world. But just on that account, not less but more, it is necessary that it be properly organized and equipped and administered, that it may function properly." Yes, the typewriter doesn't exist for itself, but for the manuscript it produces. But if you're not concerned that all of the mechanism is so arranged that when you push an A, an A comes up and taps the ribbon and you get an A on your thing, you're not going to have a manuscript. That's the point that Warfield is making. Beware how you tamper with any machine, lest you mar or destroy its product. Beware how you tamper with or are indifferent to the divine organization and ordering of the church lest you thereby mar its efficiency or destroy its power as the pillar and ground of the truth. Surely you can trust God to know how it is best to organize his church so that it may perform its functions in the world. And surely you must assert that his ordering of the church, which is his, is necessary if not for the essay that is, the being of the church, certainly for the beni, the well-being, the beni essay of the church. And to those sentiments of Warfield, though he doesn't need my amen, I say a hearty and an unreserved amen. Or perhaps Warfield might have preferred a more proper amen. And I hope your heart says amen. Now, at this point, since we've gone for our 50 minutes, I think it'd be well for us to take a break. We've done the exposition of the text, and I hope persuaded your judgment as to why... It should be regarded as a watershed epitomizing text, a locus classicus with respect to this subject, and then after we take our 10-minute break, we'll come back, and I want to make an extended application of the text and then pick up that second category of biblical witness, some supporting biblical text and perspectives. But let's take our 10-minute break, all right? Letter D to an extended application of this text that I've designated as the watershed, the epitomizing text, the locus classicus with regard to this whole issue of the tremendous importance of the subject that we've embarked upon in this semester of our studies, namely the work of oversight and government in the Church of Christ. And having sought to give what I trust was a responsible exposition of the text that carried your consciences, bringing in the confirming voice of respected exegetes and theologians to confirm and validate and underscore, now then in this extended application I want you to consider with me basically Paul's example in this matter, then the particular areas of temptation for the man of God, and then the peculiar relevance of this text as an antidote to these temptations. Now if indeed Paul's perspective in this text Reflects his overall ministerial perspective, we should expect that it would be validated in his own practice. This passionate concern for behavior in the house of God. And I've listed in your notes two biblical witnesses. First of all, the summary statement of Acts chapter 14. With a divinely given commission to bear the name of Christ to the Gentiles, and with his evident passion, that he would literally take the gospel to all of the major population centers of the existing Greco-Roman world. You remember he writes there in his epistle to the Romans that his next foray is going to be up to Spain. He said, I have no more place in these parts. I have fulfilled my understanding of my commission, but I'm not coasting and I'm not retiring And I want to come and make some contribution to you and be enriched by my fellowship and be brought on my way by you to Spain. So here's a man who has not lost any of his tremendous world-encompassing evangelistic and missionary passion. And yet he did not have this notion that minimal amount of truth for minimum amount of time and rush on to the next place. That's my task, building up the churches, securing well-ordered churches. That's the task of the resident pastor. That was not Paul's perspective. And whenever I hear someone say, well, I'm called to quote an evangelistic ministry in which my only responsibility is to preach the minimal truths of the gospel, get people to make professions of faith, And then I go on and someone else does the rest of the work. I have no scruples to challenge them and show me from the Bible where God ever gave such a commission. Mm -hmm. The commission of the risen Lord is make disciples, baptize, and teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And in the apostles' own ministry, we see this validated. Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 23. And when they had preached the gospel to that city... And had made many disciples, what did they do? Press on to new areas where the gospel had not yet been preached? Not yet. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, the places where they had previously labored, confirming the souls of the disciples, strengthening, establishing the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. They give them a realistic assessment of what persevering faith will, how it will be manifested in their lives. That many tribulations await them and their entrance into the consummate expression of the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed for them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now, we know, though all of this is condensed into one verse, verse 23, when they had appointed for them elders, we have every reason to assume that what Paul gives to Timothy as his marching orders to implement in his place represents Paul's pattern in doing the very thing when he was on board to do it in person. So that would mean that Paul had to give instruction about the biblical standards for elders, the biblical functions for elders perhaps some of the very stuff we find in Acts chapter 20 when he's charging the Ephesian elders, and some of the stuff that eventually finds its way into the pastoral epistles, just as the gospel materials, or the materials of the gospel, were first of all fixed in oral traditions, and then put in writing, could it not be that what we have in the pastoral epistles is the divinely inspired record of the kind of stuff that Paul did, squeezed into a verse 23. When they had appointed for them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. But this much is clear, that he was concerned that there be biblical church order. Here the focus is upon responsible, competent, God-equipped leadership, and we know from the analogy of Scripture, he would not establish the leadership without imparting to the leaders at least the broad outlines of what they were to do in that position of leadership. You don't give a man two bars and call him a captain and not tell him what captains do, and have him stand around polishing his bars, saying, well, I know they mean something, (laughs) and Hey, I'm a captain, guys. Will you tell me what captains do? No, no, captains appear on the scene. They know what they're to do. And they tell the lieutenants and the sergeants and the corporals and and the buck privates what they're to do. And so it's unthinkable from the analogy of Scripture and general revelation to think that the Apostle would do these things without imparting, at least in principle, the stuff that finds eventual embodiment in the pastoral epistles. And so we learn from Paul's example that this passionate concern for behavior in the house of God, church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth, did indeed regulate his ministry. And then I've said all of the pastoral epistles. When we pick up First and Second Timothy and Titus, they are called pastoral epistles for a good reason. Not because Timothy was a pastor in the strict sense of the word, nor Titus. They were apostolic representatives. They occupy a unique place in redemptive history. And that's a moot question, as you know. Were they evangelists? Were they this? What, what was their precise identity? But I don't think anyone would argue the statement that they occupied a unique place in redemptive history. However, when we collate all of the data regarding the task of ordinary bishops, overseers, presbyters, shepherds, pastors and teachers, all of the terminology used in scripture for the ordinary standing office of those appointed by Christ to lead in his church, we see that... For the most part, those tasks find a concentrated expression in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Hence, they've been called the pastoral epistles. Because Timothy and Titus carried on tasks that are of the very essence of the standing order of the tasks of pastors. Now, that is another validation, then, you see, that Paul's perspective poured into our epitomizing text was not something that was the result of a concentrated meditation upon this thing and a temporary flight of emphasis, but it marked the whole corpus of his ministry. But then there are, and I felt this was the best place to put it under extended application, particular areas of temptation for the man of God in the pastoral office— With respect to working out the implications of this text in the nuts and bolts pastoral duty, we're going to be taking up the work of oversight and shepherding and governing and leading as it touches the public services, those mandated by God, those that are mandated by our cultural setting. We're going to be taking up such issues as range all the way from conducting funerals to weddings to the ordinary services of ministry and preaching, etc. Well, what temptations will we face when we encounter these things, when we encounter the matters of how we give oversight to the people of God and direct the prayer meetings and how we seek to sort out the matter of gender functions within the church? What will be the practical temptations we will face to have something less than a passionate, meticulous desire, or a desire to give meticulous obedience to the implications of 1 Timothy 3, 15. Well, I've listed the major ones as I've seen them in my own heart and observed them in my brethren. And the first is the temptation to laziness in examining these issues from the Scriptures. The temptation to laziness in examining these issues from the Scriptures. You remember what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 22 when His enemies thought they had Him on the horns of a logical dilemma. And they come up with this cockamamie story as though they knew such a person that uh, He's going to Um, they're going to get the Lord in a position where he has to give a ridiculous answer with respect to the resurrection. You remember verse 23, On that day there came to him Sadducees that say there is no resurrection, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, and then they quote from one of the uh, dictums of the Mosaic law, Now there were with us. They state this as though it were a fact. I think it was a story they made up, figuring they got the Lord uh, backed against the wall. And I can just, can you see the smirk on their face? We really got him now we got Moses saying, this is what you got to do. He's not going to argue with Moses. We've already tried that before, and we find he's not going to argue with Moses. So we got him now. Moses said, a man die, have no children. Brother shall raise up seed. Marry his wife, raise up seed to his brother. Now, this guy went through seven and uh, still had no kids. Now then, or she had no kids. Who's she going to belong to in the resurrection? Can't you see the look on their face? Who's she going to belong to in the resurrection? Did you see it? And what did the Lord say? Verse 29, But Jesus answered and said unto them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. That's it. Nor the power of God. And then he attacks their fundamental premise, which produced their phony situation, this charade of a situation. But the Lord says, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures. And then it's amazing what he brings forward, saying, If you knew the Scriptures, you would know that when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Involved in that statement is not just a surface association of Jehovah as the God of the covenant who made covenantal commitments to Abraham, reiterated those commitments to Isaac and Jacob, but in saying, I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of all that Abraham is and ever shall be as a body, soul, entity. And if I'm Abraham's God, not just the God of his soul then there's got to be a resurrection because Abraham died. And if I'm his God and God of all that Abraham is, he's got to be raised up so I can be his God forever in covenant fidelity. And you folks should have been able to extrapolate that from that statement. In other words, you see, the Lord charges them with a culpable ignorance for not digging beyond the surface meaning of the text of Scripture. That's the point. Now, if he charges... These blind, unbelieving Pharisees with culpability for not going beyond the surface obvious significance to the real heart of a text. What would he say to us who have the scriptures, who have the Holy Spirit and who are put in a position of ruling under Christ in Christ's house, according to the directives of this book? What a wretched thing when through laziness and refusal to search out the blueprint of God for His church in all of its activities, the church ceases to be something less than what she ought to be as pillar and ground of the truth, ordered in all of her life by the directives of Holy Scripture. And then I've listed that text in Hosea 8 and verse 12, one of the saddest passages in the Word of God, where there are times God reveals his broken heart when there's covenant infidelity notice beginning with verse 8 of Hosea Israel is swallowed up now are they among the nations as a vessel wherein none delights they're gone up to Assyria like a wild ass alone by himself Ephraim hath hired lovers what a sad thing Ephraim is hired lovers I Jehovah having entered into covenant relationship married to my people Ephraim hires lovers. Though they hire among the nations, now will I gather them. They begin to be diminished by reason of the burden of the kings of princes. Because Ephraim hath multiplied altars for sinning, altars have been unto him for sinning, I wrote for him the ten thousand things of my law. But they are counted as a strange thing. God says, here I disclosed my heart in great detail to my people but they treat them with absolute indifference. And God's grieved. He's not only angry, He's grieved. And now, how must, and I say it reverently, how must God feel when here He's given us in this blessed book, in the completed canon of Scripture, all that is necessary for the man of God to be thoroughly furnished unto every good work, even the good work of oversight and government and shepherding of His people, And matters are treated with indifference. I wrote unto him the ten thousand things of my law, but they were counted as a strange thing. The temptation to laziness in examining these things is very real, brethren, and I would urge you to resist it in the strength of Christ and remember your task, as I've listed in that third text. 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your utmost, the imperative of spudazzo, Second Timothy 2.15, do your utmost, the imperative of spudazzo, give yourself with diligence and energy to be approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, cutting a straight course in the word of truth, not only in the exposition of objective doctrinal propositions, but in the exposition, application, and implementation of behavior in God's house. Resist the temptation to laziness. Secondly, the temptation to to succumb to the fear of man. We looked at one of these texts in another connection two weeks ago, Galatians 1.10, where Paul says, If I should yet seek to please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. At one point in my life, having the approbation of my fellow Jews, especially those of the strictest sect of the Jews, my fellow Pharisees, meant everything to me. I was outstripping even my peers and basking in the glow of their approbation. He said, if I should yet be in that framework, I'm not the bond slave. I have not truly become the bondslave of Jesus Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, a man who by temperament seemed to be disposed to fearfulness, tentativeness. He had a weak constitution. All of those things we pick up in reading the pastoral epistles what does he say to Timothy with respect to this matter of fear? He says, God did not give us a spirit of fearfulness, but of power and love and discipline. Timothy, the things I call upon you to do, though they seem beyond you and beyond your natural temperament, remember you're indwelt by the Spirit, and the Spirit given to you does not lead to fearfulness and timidity. And then, the text in Galatians 2 has peculiar relevance to the specific issues that we're dealing with. You remember the incident? We were reminded of it in Professor Goswiller's message last week. When Cephas came to Antioch, I resisted him to the face because he stood condemned. Or before that, certain came from James, he ate with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Now notice the motive, fearing them. That were of the circumcision. Now, where was Peter's compromise? He didn't compromise any objective doctrinal truth by raising a question about it verbally, by openly denying it, but he contradicted truth by his action in his interaction with the people of God. His action. His action. Look, before that certain came, he ate, but when they came, he drew back. And so you had a situation where a fundamental principle of redemptive reality was being denied with respect to whose table Peter would sit at and eat his meal. Paul is saying that where you sit when you eat a meal either validates the truth of the gospel as it pertains to the church or it neutralizes it. And what is that truth? That he has made of both one? He's broken down the middle wall of partition. And in Christ there is neither bond nor free, Jew nor Greek, all one new man in Christ Jesus. And what is eating in that oriental and in that cultural setting but the expression of covenantal commitment? I will sup with him and he with me. Peter was denying a fundamental truth of the gospel in his practical ecclesiology in his observable ecclesiology, drawing back, saying there must be some reason still existing in the gospel for my not eating with Gentiles. And Paul says the motive for it was this, he feared them that were of the circumcision. There will be that temptation to succumb to the fear of man in areas pertaining to the outworking Of the practical demands of a consistently biblical ecclesiology. And if Peter could fall before this, who are you, who am I to think this will not be a temptation to us? Then thirdly, there'll be the temptation to conform to the traditions of men. That temptation is always there. You remember what Tevye says about tradition, tradition. And I love the words where he says, do you know why we wear this? Gold cap, you know why we wear it? Do you know? I don't know either. But it's part of our tradition. And without our tradition, we would be as unstable as a fiddler on the roof. He don't know why he wears it. But he feels so comfortable because it's part of his tradition. For example, brethren, when I traveled around the country, with very little ecclesiology, but at least I had a little common sense and knew a little bit of my Bible, I could never figure out why we'd get 10 minutes into the service of worship and then we'd get a litany of announcements. Every evangelical church I went to as an evangelist and Bible teacher had the same wretched evangelical tradition, announcements, 10 minutes into the service. And everyone felt very comfortable with it. Why? Why? it was the skullcap on their head part of their tradition. And without it, they would feel as unstable as a fiddler on the roof. Why? They would have been standing against something that was the accepted norm in evangelical churches. If that's a little thing, is it a little thing? What are you saying to the people? These are the preliminaries. Now we can have the announcements and then we have the warm-up for the preaching. What a wretched view of the worship of the thrice-holy God. Wretched view. But that temptation is there. And Jesus saw it in his own day. And you remember what he said to those leaders. Matthew fifteen six b He said, you are those who follow the traditions of men. And in so doing, you make void the word of God. You have made void the word of God because of your tradition. And he gave specific, specific examples of how that was being done. And this... Alas, is a constant temptation to conform to the traditions of men, not just the traditions of Rome, but the traditions already beginning to emerge in Reformed Baptist churches. And we can conform to our own made traditions that may only have 25 years' credibility and seniority. I've told people, if I'm going to be a traditionalist, I'll go over to Rome. I've got 1,500 years it has got a lot more, you know, that's, that's the old wine of tradition that's a lot better. At least there's a richness in a tradition that's older. And we need constantly, the Reformed Church is the reforming church, bringing every practice to the touchstone of the Word of God. And what will help you in this is the recognition of the truth of 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Be not the slaves of men. I have been purchased by Jesus Christ to be his bond slave. To have a conscience held captive by the word of God, not by traditions of men. Now, I fully understand that there are certain things that are innocent traditions that do not negate the word of God, that are a valid expression of what our confession says, the general rules by which men order life and society. I fully understand that. And there are certain traditions that are comfortable and suitable and acceptable and wise, but they do not result in making void the word of God it is those traditions that make void the word of God or keep us from obeying the word of God negate or impede obedience to the word it is those that we need by God's grace to resist then fourthly there will be the temptation in this area more than perhaps in any area of general preaching and exposition the temptation to misguided and carnal zeal And here our Lord is a marvelous example of chastened, disciplined, principled zeal where there needed to be radical reformation of what was going on in his father's house. In Mark chapter 11, we have the account of the second cleansing of the temple. The one at the beginning of his ministry, now toward the close of his ministry. And Mark gives us this little additional stroke of information that we don't get in the parallel passages. Mark chapter 11 and verse 11. And he entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, it being now eventide, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. See what our Lord is doing? He's taking in the information. In terms of modern counseling uh, terminology, he was gathering data. He looked round about at all things. Assessing. This is this. This is this this this, this. this this this. He goes out that evening then to Bethany with the twelve. On the morrow on the way in, the cursing of the fig tree. Now verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem. And he entered into the temple and began to cast them out. The activity of verse 15 has its tap roots in the careful, may I say, calm assessment described in verse 11. Here was not a blind, reflexive reaction, but a contemplated, sober, restrained, principled response to all of the irregularities that he saw in his father's house. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself so to walk, even as he walked. And as we look round about us, as those who are watchmen within God's house, overseers, episcopeo, one who is constantly looking over, we need to make sure we look thoroughly, we look carefully, we look comprehensively, and that we do not act Precipitously, Proverbs 19.2 has been a text that God has used times without number in my life, particularly with respect to matters pertaining to the work of oversight. Whether it was a straying brother or sister that needed perhaps to be aggressively dealt with, whether it was an irregularity, whatever it is where you might be tempted to be hasty, that the soul be without knowledge is not good, and he who hastes with his feet sins or misses his way. God does not need carnal haste to accomplish his work. And then I've listed as the third text, James three seventeen and 18. If God has given us any true heavenly wisdom in matters pertaining to the ordering of his house in the full broad spectrum of what is involved in that as it will unfold In the rest of this semester and God willing into the next, wherever we have divine wisdom, here are some of its marks. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without variance, without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by them that make Peace. Now there are times when fidelity to our task as overseers will bring us into great disruption and perhaps even great opposition. But we want to make sure it is not disruption and opposition that has come because of misguided and carnal zeal. The kind of wisdom described in verse 15 that is earthly, sensual, devilish, that unnecessarily provokes these horrible Uh, attitudes and dispositions of jealousy, faction, etc and this is where we need to cry to God that he will give us that tempered gracious zeal of our Lord Jesus Christ and then, and here I speak I trust from some measure of, of experience, there will constantly be the temptation to back away through weariness and loneliness you're going to be a lonely man If you are passionately concerned for behavior in God's house. If you're never content to say, well, we've reached a level of reasonable conformity to the scripture, now let's coast. If when you get together with your brethren, you're always thinking through issues, you're raising scriptures, you're encouraging them to raise issues with you, the kind of thing we were talking about in the coffee room. Why is it that some people never come to see certain truths? You just, it's an abnormality. You just don't say, oh, well, the world's full of abnormality. Forget it. You're, You're willing to be open, to wrestle. Now, what happens over the long haul? And remember, brethren, I'm not talking like someone who's been at this for 10 years. In one place for 34 years, committed to these very perspectives, there is a very real temptation to back away through weariness on the one hand and loneliness on the other. Because what you find with the passing of the years back here in your early experience there may be any number of men who seem to share your sympathies or an ongoing conformity of the totality of your life and ministry to the scriptures. Then you'll come to an issue where you say, well it seems to me the scriptures are clear on this issue. You try to share it with some of your brethren and they say, well, it may be clear but really, is it really worth pressing that issue? Mm -hmm. And as you go on in your continual Absorption of and commitment to God's truth. The circle of those ready to walk with you gets narrower and narrower. It's longer. Now, you better make sure that that circle of living companions that gets narrower brings you more and more into that wider circle of the continuum of God's people. I mean, if you come up with ideas that nobody else has ever seen before, then you may have the seeds of a heretic and of a crass independent, proud person. I'm not talking about that. If you know your ground is biblical, and when you can see that, look, my passionate concern is not fanatical. Everyone has told me that probably since Calvin and Owen, the next man of stature in that category is Warfield. If Warfield felt this passionately, and he saw it in the text, I'm not a screwball. I'm not a wild-eyed a fringe, lunatic, Anabaptist back from the dead. I'm not a semi-Zwickaw prophet. I know my ground. I'm going to stand my ground. And by the grace of God, I'm going to live out that implication. Yes, you know you've got your ground right. But it will get lonelier. And unless there's something that snapped in you, nobody likes to be lonely. The Son of God felt the pang of loneliness. Could you not watch with me? Will you also go away? Loneliness is a painful experience. And the temptation will be to back away in these matters through weariness and loneliness. And therefore I leave you three texts again. Galatians 6, 9. We're told in that wonderful promise, though the immediate connection and its more direct application may be to things material, certainly it's a principle that goes far beyond that. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Anything that can come within the legitimate scope of well-doing, don't be weary in it. Paul seems to clearly imply that weariness is one of the accompaniments of continuance in any course of well-doing. But he said, let us not be weary in well-doing. And what will be the antidote to that weariness? For in due season we shall reap, if, 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 we faint not. It's a conditional promise. If we faint not, we shall reap. And then the text that was opened up for us several weeks ago by Pastor Carlson, right from this lectern. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know. This is a matter of knowledge and nothing to do with how you feel on any given day. You may feel battered and blasted and blistered and bent out of shape. And any other bees you want to put next to that. But the fact is, you can, by the grace of God, continue to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And if it's labor bent on seeking to implement biblical directives for the oversight and government of Christ's church, his house, his pillar and ground of the truth, then we can do so in the confidence that we are not on a fool's errand. And then I remind you of the incident, and I've listed First Kings 19 and verse 3 and following, of that man of God, Elijah, who had poured out his life's blood, as it were, in that encounter on Carmel, and now this painted witch of a woman just barks, and he's ready to die. The guy who would stand up and look these false prophets in the eye... And take a whole bunch of them down, it always fascinates me. It says that he took them down and he slew them. Now, sometimes Scripture says that the person responsible doesn't mean it was by the agency of his hands. I know enough of my Bible to know that. But at the same time, there's nothing in the text itself that indicates that anyone other than Elijah himself, hacked in huge, you just go out and split, you know, a third of a cord of wood. And this guy's whacking and dismembering 400 prophets. No wonder he's tired. How do you think that? Psychologically. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, what we now call horror movies and blood and guts movies. I mean, there's nothing that's been made that can approach this. I mean, he hacked and hewed a whole bunch of them, killed them. Courageous. And yet now what happens? This woman says, swearing by her own gods, by tomorrow if you ain't dead, may the gods kill me, in essence. And... He's off, he splits, and he's got a death wish. What's my point? The point is, if a man of that stature can get weary and feel something of the vulnerability of loneliness, and the Bible says we with him are men of what? Like passions? Is it not with specific reference to Elijah, the man of God, in the book of James? Then, brethren, beware of the temptation to back away through weariness and loneliness. When you're in one place for all these years, you say, surely, surely on this particular aspect of the ordering of God's house, this is so much a given that I don't need to preach about this. I don't need to suspect that anyone tried to undermine it. Uh Uh-uh, don't be so naive. Adam doesn't grow old and weak with age. He goes stronger. (laughs) And we find ourselves right now in our weekly elders' meetings dealing with things that we shake our heads and say, we never thought we'd have to face this at least in our lifetime, but we do, and you can get weary, and when you do, this comes now to the peculiar relevance of this text in Timothy as an antidote to these temptations. What keeps you at it? Well, many things. But I have found over the years it is this text that perhaps more than any others has helped me to come back and again, back again and again. This is not Al Martin's church. This is not the church of the elders who labor with me. This is not the church of the people. This is God's house. And I have been charged to take care of the house of God, 1 Timothy 3, 5. I have been charged to shepherd the flock of God that is among us, I and my fellow elders. And this thing that is God's house, he has made the pillar and the ground of the truth. And I'm determined that I'll preach the truth in a context that embodies the truth. Now follow me at this point, brethren. This is absolutely crucial. You know the emphasis that comes through in the section, those of you who have been with us for the section, of our pastoral theology on the life of the man of God, where again and again I sought to emphasize the biblical principle, you must seek to be the embodiment of what you preach. If your life is not a perfect, no, not a perfect, but if your life is not a valid embodiment of what you preach, shut your mouth until it is. That emphasis you get over and over again, I hope not ad nauseum, but to the place where none of you will ever trade off moral, spiritual, and ethical deficiencies because of what God's doing with and through your mouth. There's no quicker way to put yourself on the highway to apostasy than to trade off ethical and moral controversies with God because of what's going on through your mouth. If God can make a dumbass speak and make him an effectual instrument to turn aside the madness of the prophet, he can take your mouth and do anything he wants with it. And it doesn't prove a thing about what you are. Not a thing. But now, let's go beyond that. Let's add to that passion that by the grace of God, my life, what people know me to be, In my walk before God, my family before the people of God, not as a perfect, but as a bona fide, real, growing embodiment of the truth I preach, in the same way, I must have a passion that the truth I preach from my Bible is not only embodied in my life, but is embodied in the house of God in which I preach it. For it, in its corporate life and identity, has been constituted the what? The pillar and the foundation of the truth. And you see, I don't understand people that can take the attitude, yes, I would never tolerate ethical abnormalities in my life that every time I stood to preach, people say, how can you preach that when this is in your life? That ungoverned temper, that known leering eye that can't keep away from the pretty young ladies in the church... No one who's got any touch with the Bible would say we can tolerate a compromise between what the man is preaching and what he is as a man. And yet they'll say, well, let's not be overly concerned. The truth is being preached and there are women who are not in their proper roles in the visible community and activity of the church men that are not taking their proper roles in the visible community, elders that don't meet the standard of 1 Timothy 3, deacons that don't meet the standard of 1 Timothy 3, and a host of other abnormalities. And when anyone gets concerned, they say, well, look, those are just piddling things. The truth is preached. That's all that matters. No, it isn't all that matters. There is something more that matters. Is that truth preached in a context of truth? where what is preached is embodied not only in the lives of those who preach it, but in the community of those who claim to be embracing that truth. And this text, I say, has been in my own life, and I trust not in any imbalanced way, a tremendous instrument of God to keep the pressure upon me to resist these temptations of willful ignorance through laziness of what the Bible has to say concerning the oversight and government and rule in the house of God. To resist the temptation to succumb to the fear of man, the temptation to conform to traditions, the temptation to misguided and carnal zeal, and the temptation to back away through weariness and through loneliness. Now, in conclusion, we move on from our examination of the pivotal passage, which demonstrates the crucial importance of the life and activity of the church, to consider very briefly what I've listed in your notes as the supportive passages and perspectives, and you can work these out more fully, I trust, in your own reflection and meditation, and I've listed three of them. How important is this matter of the oversight of the corporate life and activity of the church? Well, I bring as a supportive witness the context and thrust of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. What's the context of Revelation 2 and 3? It's the vision of chapter 1. John turns to see the voice that speaks with him. and turning, he sees this majestic figure in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And we're not left at the mercy of imaginative interpreters or even sincere interpreters. Christ himself tells us, we are told what the mystery of this image is. That the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And where is Christ seen? Not over them as their Lord, which he is. Not above them as the sovereign, which he is. But in the midst. And he himself describes himself as the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And what is he doing in the midst of the lampstands? Well, we know from each of the letters he is inspecting, He is examining, he is scrutinizing, and on the basis of that inspecting, examining, and scrutinizing the life of the churches, what is preached, what is practiced, what is done, what is not done, he is commending, he is correcting, he is threatening. Mm. People say, you never threaten anyone. That's not very Christ-like. Oh, is that so? Except thou repent, I will come, and I will. I will accept. I gave her space to repent. He threatens, and then he promises. What's the perspective? It's the perspective of Paul extrapolated into the vivid imagery of those chapters. That Christ is concerned as he inspects his churches, not only with its adherence to objective doctrinal integrity, but its practice and its life as the community is meant to reflect it. And then I've listed, secondly, the focus of concern in the book of the Acts. It's very interesting, and I was fascinated in my recent listening through the book of Acts, during my exercise period, that the account of the initial Pentecostal blessing culminates in a description of a well-ordered church, not in the individual piety of its members but in the corporate vitality of its corporate visible life and experience. Now, you go back to the passages and read them and see how that's where the emphasis falls. Of those that were added, these all continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. And then it goes on to describe their corporate life, their voluntary sharing of goods, their delight in eating in one another's homes, and in their coming together to attend to the word of God. It's very interesting that it's well-ordered, healthy, vigorous church life that is the apex of the description of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in His coming in new covenant blessing and power upon His people. And then we've already looked at Acts 14, the apostolic perspective in evangelism and church planting. They were not contented until there were well-ordered churches in every place where the gospel had been given success. And then, of course, the major concern of the majority of the New Testament epistles. Now, put yourself in my place, given the background I described, where there was a lot of emphasis in all of those circles, even in the Salvation Army, upon your personal walk before God, and that was intensified as a young Christian, personal devotions, and then in the... Christian college I went to for two years, and then the Bible college I went to, much emphasis upon the internal life, and do you know I had been a Christian, I don't know how many years before it dawned on me, that the epistles of the New Testament were not letters written so that people could have wonderful fuel for personal devotions, that they were divinely inspired pastoral letters. Now you do have a letter sent to an individual, Philemon, yes, And you do have some individual emphasis in several of the epistles, but for most part, what are they? They are expressions of the heart of Christ through the apostles or those recognized by the apostles expressing deep pastoral concern for the corporate life of the churches. There were irregularities in the life of the churches, some of them more purely doctrinal, some of them more purely practical and experiential. But you see, the major concern of the majority of the New Testament epistles has to do with this whole issue of the oversight, the government, the rule, the caring for Christ's church. And this passion is... Well warranted when we think of the Apostle's perspective on what the Church is in one of its dominant purposes in the will and purpose of God. I've listed as the two concluding texts. That marvelous text in Ephesians 3 and verse 10. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places and most likely... I should say perhaps probably almost most certainly just the gracious, non-fallen principalities and powers. That terminology, as you know, has a wide range of usage, sometimes refers to evil principalities and powers. But most likely to the benign, the beneficent, the holy principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be made known how through the church... The manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the salvation procured by the Lord Jesus, applied by the Spirit of Christ, not only draws within its orbit all of the individual and personal benefits conferred upon the believer, but God has a wider, a broader scope of eternal purpose, and that is that as a result of that salvation coming to people who find themselves gathered into churches through the church would be displayed the manifold wisdom of God. The church would be the theater of God's wisdom so ordered in all of its life and conduct that holy principalities and powers gasp with wonder and say, oh, look what God is doing. Oh, look what God is doing. Oh, the wisdom of God in that. Oh, the wisdom of God in that might be made known through the church. And when you have something of that vision, Lord, what is being displayed to those unseen powers? When's the last time they ever gasped with wonder at what they see in the sphere where you've placed me to be a responsible steward to implement your rule in your house? And how Paul could rejoice when he writes to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, Though I'm absent in the flesh, I'm with you in the spirit, joying and beholding, not by sight, but in terms of the report received, and convinced the report was accurate. He says, it's though I'm there seeing it with my own eyes. And what were the things that caused him to rejoice and to joy? It was this, beholding your order, your toxis, the military term, each in his rank, each marching as he ought, your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. He sees no disjuncture between persevering faith in Christ and all the redemptive blessings that they possess in that posture of faith and their order as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul did not have any bifurcation of the most intense personal dimensions of Christian experience and privilege and the highest form of churchmanship. To him, the two were wedded there at Colossae. And he says, in these things, I rejoiced and continue to rejoice.